Hi, this is Lois Bowers, editor of McKnight Senior Living. I'm here with Charles Turner, CEO of CARE, and we're going to discuss the evolving workforce dynamics and the potential legislative impact. Charles, tell us about the research you've done in this area. We have tens of thousands of of frontline caregivers and nurses that work in our platform. We pick up shifts every single day. And because we have so many on our platform, we can ask them questions. It's, it's hard for a traditional operator or it's even hard for even a trade association a lot of times to figure out, you know, we, we ask a lot of questions like what's gonna help the workforce? And we ask a lot of executives, we ask a lot of like, you know, maybe administrators, but it's really hard to get access to a cohesive group of frontline workers. And, and that's one of the things that we can provide. We can, we can simply ask them questions. We can throw out a survey and in a couple hours, we'll have a few thousand responses, which is a very rich database of knowledge and, and access to people that we may not always have. So because we've been doing a lot of curated studies with different trade associations, even things for ourselves, we're just, Curious. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about it is that, yeah, like, we'd love it when people could pick up shifts on our platform, save communities money, but I'm, I'm a bit of a data dork. And so I, I love just asking questions and figuring out what the data tells us. And, and so we're asking a lot of questions like, what have been, you know, caregiver sentiments and dynamics throughout the, the pandemic, for instance. We ask a lot of questions like, we ask communities and we'll ask, uh, frontline workers, the exact same question. What attracts you to your community? Why do you leave? And and seeing where there's a disconnect. And so we have a lot of research on that and, not, and the research coming back and like, you know, when you see data, it makes you ask information more of the data itself and like, oh gosh, what do we mean? Like, oh, we, we know respect is a big problem. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by respect? Who's the, who's the most disrespectful? We're, we're able to dig into a lot of those questions that may be hard to do at a macro level. And what misconceptions about the workforce does this research bring to light? You know, a, a lot, positively and negatively. So on the positive side, I think there is a general sentiment that because of COVID and now because of, say, vaccine mandates, things like that, that our workforce is just leaving, just, just leaving the industry. And, 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 and let's be clear, we think about 15, our data shows about 15% of the workforce, they've left the industry. Now, but that happened mostly early COVID, early pandemic. Even with the vaccine mandates and things like that, one of the things we find out what's been very refreshing is that our workforce, they love being a caregiver. Um, they want to be paid fairly to do it. Now we can argue what fairly means, but they want to be paid fairly to do it. They want to stay, they have a heart for seniors. We, our data keeps coming back. We want to stay in, we want to stay in, we want to stay in. That's very, very positive. Some of the other stuff, the things that were very surprising to us is, you know, we're, we'll go to senior living conferences all the time. The conversations around culture, this culture, that, how do we build, build a positive culture? One of the things we're finding in our research is the conversation around culture, as we define as operator, and I'm a recovering operator myself, <laughs> the conversation around culture is largely BS. It, what we conceive of as culture is not what a frontline healthcare worker thinks about culture. We spend all this time and money and energy trying to build our cool, you know, fantastic culture or Ritz-Carlton culture or a Disney-like culture, and and it's falling on deaf ears. And we're starting to see the data as to why that is. And it's, that part was very eye-opening for us. But being able to raise the voice of the caregiver for us and what their needs and wants are, I think, can be very helpful for a lot of operators. 
So where else do operators get it right and wrong? Yeah, I think, you know, a, a lot of, well, let's talk about where they get it right. One of the things they get it right, I think our data shows that the assumption around pay is generally in agreement with our, with our caregivers. You know, pay will drive more people to your community. Let's just be frank about that. Um, I think they get, they get that right. I think they actually get, in general, the idea of respect being a primary contributor why people stay. Where there's a disconnect is what they think they're doing for that respect, that you ask, you ask the communities and they say, yeah, we've got a great culture and a culture of respect. And you ask the, the, the frontline workers, and it's like, no, you really do not. And, and there's a huge disconnect there. Now the question is, what is it? You know, They could both be right and wrong simultaneously. But I think one of the things we do as operators where we fail is we tend to look at frontline workers or frontline caregivers in the aggregate, in mass, like they're all the same. You know, that, that if we can build a great culture, then everybody will be happy. A, a large regional operator in Texas, I'm we're close with, they said, Charles, we've had a great culture. We knew at this building down the street, we had, we had some really bad morale, so we really wanted to do something special. So we like they decided to have a whole carnival. We got clowns and jugglers and popcorn machines and all this other stuff. We just love our company culture and I had to tell them like, that's not culture, that's morale. That's great in the short term. That's not gonna keep people there. What a frontline caregiver wants is they love being in senior living. They love being a caregiver. They get a dopamine hit. We can talk about the effects of dopamine in the frontline workforce, which we have a lot of research on. So they want to stay in senior housing, stay in senior care. They want to get their dopamine hit. They want to be paid fairly to do it. But most important, they want, they want to be respected as an individual and as an equal contributor. And that's where I think we operators fall down immensely is they don't see that individual frontline caregiver as an equal partner. They want to look at them in aggregate and as my caregivers and not, this is Janet, this is Diane. What does Janet want? What does Diane want? And what contributions Janet, Diane, or what contributions are they making to our community they want to look at, are you, are you crossing off your ADLs and doing what you're supposed to do doing your job? Not for their mind. And that's where they, they struggle sometimes. What are some of the things operators can do to make employees feel more like partners? I think there needs to be, you know, again, we go back to the conversation around, around culture, culture, culture. That, that is too macro, that's too broad to get a lot of tangible output. Where, where we coach a lot of companies is take time and build. So, when you, when you ask the question of, okay, frontline caregiver, you say you feel disrespected, why? I thought that that meant I need to be praised, if I'm a frontline caregiver, I need to be praised for what I do. Turns out that's the last, they don't care about that. What they want is they want to be valued for my, my ideas and my equal contribution. And then the question is, who is the least respectful, for instance? I thought it might be the shift supervisor, maybe the DO, and it turns out it's the exec executive director or the administrator of the building. He's typically, by and large, the most, according to frontline workers. So, okay, why don't we build training programs as operators that, that teaches active listening skills and empathetic skills for our frontline, as we're building our own leadership culture that, 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 that programmatically sits down with their employees. It's no different than we do for residents where you have like a, a, you know, whatever, a 15, 30, 60, 90 day check-in process, 
we need the exact same thing for our frontline workers. Okay, you know, tell me about your wants, needs, and desires. Where do you want to grow with your career? Turns out, you know, we, we make the assumption that frontline caregivers want career pro, uh, progression. So, oh, like, how do we make a CNA and a nurse and a, you know, blah, blah, blah. Turns out only about 10% of CNAs actually want to be nurses. They either want to they either want to just be a caregiver, they love being a caregiver, or they want to move more into an operational role. They don't want to work in the clinic. They don't see themselves as clinical. We we assume because the CNA reports to the nurse that they that's their career path. Like when we we see ourselves more as operations, not clinical. Building programs, workforce development around how do you make them better operational leaders and versus clinical leaders can actually help your workforce as an example. So are there signs of optimism? Yeah, I will say this. We've seen the last probably 60 or 90 days, look, the workforce situation is bad and it's gonna be bad probably for a while. But I think with the decline of Omicron, as well as a lot of some of the other initiatives that people are kind of learning about, it is, it is, it is still less severe. Uh, it's becoming less severe. It's still an acute problem, but it's becoming less severe. We're also seeing on the margins, we see this in our data, that people are, are returning back to the workforce, again, on the margins, so it's a little, every little bit, bit helps. So I think there's that, but I also think that we need to do a, a better job of marketing ourselves as a workforce a good place to work. We talk, you know, I know we, we do a lot of with uh, ASHA, and they have you know, Where You Live Matters campaign. And I would love to see the same emphasis put on the Where You Work Matters campaign. Because one of the things we find is that because of, of COVID, there, you know, we talk about the workforce shortage in health, general health care, but in early COVID, there are a lot of people that got furloughed because like elective surgeries had declined and things like that, right? Those people still needed to work. They actually ended up coming into senior care uh, early on, especially through our platform. And I ended up like, we got this all the time. We, gosh, we really, really love it. We, we love, we didn't know about senior care because we don't educate the educational organizations and the workforce groups. Like, don't just think about healthcare as being in a hospital, think about being in supposed to keep in senior care. And nine times out of 10, we see when they come and they're like, we like this a lot more than that environment. So I think we need to put a lot of our emphasis on that. So um, can you tell us about how CARE is addressing workforce issues? Yeah, so one of the things we do is that we provide a lot of information to operators, like we, like we were just talking about. A lot of our research and like, how do we attract workforce? How do we retain workforce? The other things what we know is the, 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 the conversation around things like, you know, next day pay, uh, get it, you know, and ultimate flexibility. Like, why is care successful? And re, at least in practical workers, what we call heroes, is because they work a shift, they do a job, they get paid the next business day, and they can work when and where they want. We know that at a macro level, we're bringing in a lot of labor capacity that was sitting in the sidelines because before care, they either had to work in a community on a fixed schedule or they had to work for a staffing agency with shift minimums. Well, if I have to take care of family, take care of a child, or I'm a student, or have, I, I can't commit to any sort of fixed schedule, I can't work. We've seen, especially during the pandemic, we're bringing in, on the margins, bringing in workforce capacity that wasn't there. We've seen what we've done in Colorado, especially in things like Chicago, Atlanta, cities like that, where yeah, major, major labor crisis, we're seeing people that, they've come into the space, added more capacity to the workforce, and able to, to alleviate some of the pressure from, from, from these communities. Um, and then, of course, we're already working with, you know, 
we have uh, our app, when you work a shift, if you're here and work a shift with us, you get a, as soon as that shift is, you get immediate feedback of what you did well and maybe what you need to improve on every single shift. So they get that feedback and, and we actually have data that shows, once we started measuring this stuff about a year, year and a half ago, the quality of our hero base improving, like just with our algorithms, we show it once we start giving that feedback and they know what they need to do to actually improve their, their quality. So we see you saying that staffing agencies suck and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, so pre-COVID, there were I think about 5,300 frontline workers staffing agencies in the United States. I'm sure during COVID that number's ballooned. That, that's a very, just fundamentally, it's a very fragmented world. Like why do we need that many companies? That's, that's a highly inefficient labor market. That's first and foremost. Again, I'm a recovering owner and operator. We always, like we never would allow staffing agencies in our buildings for, for three reasons. One, they were too expensive. They would just dictate the terms to us. Two, we had no, Control over who, who came through our front door and how we control um, our, you know, someone that matches our culture. And three, gosh, if we really like someone, we'd love to hire them. We can't hire them. So we've solved those problems because we're not a staffing agency. We're a labor marketplace. All we do is we pre-qualify tens of thousands of workers. We sign up communities. It's a 15 minute to sign up. It's, it's not like there's no recurring license and maintenance fees or anything like that. It's a community. You could download our app as a, as a community never use this, it doesn't cost you a dime. It only costs you when you, you bring in one of our heroes. So you post a shift, you set the pay rates, we don't set the pay rates. Our fee's the same whether you wanna bid a dollar an hour or a thousand dollars an hour. It's not gonna get filled for a dollar an hour, but but we don't set the pay rates. Um, and the second, you know, you'll have multiple people apply, you see all their metrics, you see every review, every shift I've ever had. You select who comes to your front door, and if you like them, you can keep them kind of on your old roster and, and encourage them to come back because you know they, they meet your cultural criteria. And the last thing is, if you like our heroes, hire them for free. Like, we want you to hire them. Um, we, we have people that use us all the time as a recruiting tool, kind of a call, quote, try before you buy, and that works both ways. So our heroes can say, like, I want a permanent job. I want to try a few places out to see if I really like it. And for communities, it works the same way. So it's a great way to recruit people that you know fit your culture and, and will show up to work. Let's switch gears a little bit. And I was wondering if you could talk about what mistakes states have made uh, pursuing legislation. No, oh, it's a good question. So, you know, there's a lot of, we obviously want to protect our seniors and we should protect our seniors. But in, in the greatest workforce shortage that we've ever seen, we see states put up impediments um, to make it harder to hire. So let's just take frontline healthcare, and I, I know senior care is debatable as healthcare, but let's just incorporate that as a macro industry. It, it's, it takes uh, us longer as an industry to hire than any other industry in the, in the world. And the reason is all the credentialing and the legal hoops we have to go through. So, you know, obviously we want people to have background checks, great. But is the state and the way you're doing it the best way of doing it? We think it, you know, a lot of times states think that they are, but it makes it really hard to hire somebody. If it takes, if, if you know, we know in the state of Minnesota right now, there's a backlog of 300,000 uh, background checks that are there behind. You can't hire anybody until it happens. Like they have no plan on how to get that through because of how the certain legislation that they passed. You know, a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of legislation around that, you know, penalizing staffing agencies. 
I, care, we're generally okay with that like, because they're worried about price gouging. Again, we don't set the pay rate, so it doesn't matter for us. We're going to be far less expensive than a staffing agency anyway. But when you start getting into things making it difficult, you know, to if, making it difficult for staffing agencies, fine, but if you make it difficult for workers to find work, we see this in several states. Again, the state of Minnesota is one of them. There are other states out there that make it hard that you've got to go through either you have to be part of a community or part of a staffing agency to find work. Like, why do I need to do that? I'm credentialed, I'm qualified. You can look up my, my qualifications. Why do I need to go through these, one, these organizations that slow the process down um, when you can go through a labor marketplace like ours and find, you know, I'm qualified and I can go work for you in, in five minutes from now. I don't have to wait three weeks to, to go through everything, right? When something like that's, um, we've already pre-qualified workers. So, it, there's a lot of things we throw up in terms, the states throw up in terms of background checks, um, redundant training requirements, like, oh, you're a CNA, you have this training. Okay, well, do you work in community? Okay, you gotta get trained on the exact same thing again. And some states, like, you go building to building to building, it can be the same building within the same company. You gotta get retrained on the exact same thing every time you go to a new building. And like, if I'm a frontline caregiver, like, this is, one, it's insulting, and two, it's, it is highly inefficient. I can't get someone on the floor fast enough that's already been trained in my company. Again, I'm an operator, I have buildings, multiple buildings myself. The idea of having to train someone going from building, the exact same building, exact same floor plan, exact same policies and procedures. I got to train 40 hours of training. That's very short-sighted from a legislative process. I'm like, how do we really clean this up? And how do we standardize Okay, we don't want national regulations, but how do we at least standardize, make this look very similar across states? Going from state to state is really hard to operate. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. Charles Turner, CEO of CARE. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>